Kia ora welcome to episode 72 of the Stag Roar. Following on from last week's episode with Brody Tonka, we interview Brett Soren from Sorenex. Um, powerful interview, Brett is a former Olympic trialist, former All-American, really good at throwing stuff. Um, he's competed highly in Highland Games as well, and now of course is the CEO and I guess the inspiration behind Sorenex, which creates not only amazing gym equipment, but a piece of art. Um, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Bert talks about basically just keeping at it, those one percenters, those things that you do every day, the mindset, um, and then being able to be open to influence and, and finding out those really amazing people that come across our lives. So powerful episode, I hope you enjoy it. Um, also, just thought I'd re-mention that if you're in this part of the world, so either um, Sunshine Coast in Coffs Harbour or around Gold Coast, the Wim Hof Method will be run by Mark Kluwer, who you heard a few episodes back, and uh, Dino Gladstone in, on the 13th and 14th of April. I'll be at the Cool and Gatter one on the 14th of April, so I hope to see you there. If you're interested in that, just click the link in the show notes. Right. Enough of that, let's get into this awesome episode with Brett Soren from Sorenex. It's powerful, enjoy. Kia ora everybody, um, life works in funny ways. On the weekend I was talking to Brady Titonga, um, we had Kai Fanu on here a lot of time and then all of a sudden now I'm talking to the legend, Brett Soren. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me man, it's, it's, it's fun when uh, our, our people connect us, it's good. Absolutely and um I'm not rocking some sort of crazy red light. I'm, I'm, I've got a salt lamp to, <laughs> so, so that I don't wake up my daughter again. It's 1 a.m. here, man. Um, oh, crap, man. I didn't realize it, the typical American not uh, taking anyone else's time into, into, into uh, account. <laughs> and we, we organized this, and, and when I was talking with, with Kai, we, we both said I'd lose sleep to talk, talk to Bert. Before we, before oh, jeez. Before we get into it, mate, um, what did you do on the weekend just been? Because obviously the weekend before that was pretty epic with uh, Winter Strong, but the weekend just been, what did you get up to? Uh, well, we did Winter Strong, and then the next weekend uh, we had my daughter's birthday at a friend of ours' house, and uh, Kai was down there in Atlanta as well. And so it, my, my, my daughter, is um, she, she's a really, good, a really big fan of, of my friend Zach. Yeah. And uh, so that's what she asked to go uh, for her birthday. So, which I find funny because it's basically, you know, I think last year we took her to Disney World and she would rather go to Zach's house. No. So Zach has five kids and basically an amusement park at his house. So it was cool. Yeah. When I, when I saw Kai doing all her training and stuff, she was just like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. I don't need to go far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh uh, yeah. So we got to shoot, shoot bows and uh, climb walls and, do all the fun stuff you know and then we can involve your kids it's it's even better and then hang out with people like kai and and laura and brady and build knives with scott and yeah it's, it's good life's good awesome man he's talking about climbing walls you managed to rig up a few holds in your little little man cave yeah yeah i've been wanting to do a, a climbing wall of sorts for a while uh and partially because i'm i don't i don't care for heights not mm -hmm. afraid of them, but I just really, they're, they're not really my thing. Um, so I wanted to, you know, 
get better at that. And then, although it's not very high, but it's still just a little bit of inoculation. Then my son and my daughter, and they, they enjoy climbing the wall. So I have a little setup that I put up for them last year. So this one was just about 16 feet high and they could go up there and they're only seven and five. So, um, it's enough. And so, yeah, it's in the man cave. And so I call it really the fam cave because I, I set it up where it's all the cool man stuff that I like to do, but it's also a place that my family feels welcome coming in. And if I'm training or preparing for a hunt or getting my things together and doing, doing my, my man type things, um, my kids have an area that they could play and make obstacle courses and my wife could go in there and train or hang out. And, um, we've done podcasts out of there. It becomes like a kind of a bar and grill at nights sometimes. Um, so that's, uh, that's kind of how it works. So that's where, that's where my, uh, my favorite place is. What, what's the actual stru- structure? Cause it, the interior looks amazing. What's the actual structure of it? Uh, it's, it's very, um, clandestine. Uh, so it's just a metal building. It's a very, people look at me and go, gosh, I didn't expect that. You know, so I kind of <laughs> kept the outside of it, you know, just a, a pretty inexpensive metal, what they call a pole building or pole barn, uh, you know, metal sheet metal, um, outside and, you know, six by six wooden studs. And it was a concrete floor, kind of like a garage, you know, um, mm. when we purchased the house, it was uh 15, 1500 square feet. So 30 by 50, 16 foot. Uh, you know, roof. And then it was just a big rectangle that a lot of people might work on a car or something. in. Uh, so first thing we did, we did a spray foam insulation inside, put air conditioning and heat inside of it. Uh, then we uh, put up studs. Then we put up acacia butcher block walls to give it a, a solid surface to attach things to, but also to give it a different feel and look. Um, put in a, a rubber floor that we, we make here at Sornex. Um, so then I had a, a one inch thick rubber floor. So, if, you know, I could train anywhere we could, you know, if I'm maybe working on a gun or a bow or something like that, it falls on the ground. I don't dent up or scratch up my stuff. Uh, also the kids could run around as a light color. They could, you know, I could kind of keep them safe, but also if they were to fall, they're not going to break their head open or something. So it kind of made a very functional space <clears throat> that I could use for my whole family to kind of recreation area. Uh, after that we did some, uh, rusted tin on the walls and some, you know, different embellishments, some lighting. And, you know, then it just becomes like a two year project, you know, it's kind of like, Hey, we'll just do this. We'll be done. And then it's like two years later, we're still screwing with it, making climbing walls. And I don't know what the next piece I was thinking about trying to integrate into the wall, a quarter pipe for my son or maybe me for skateboarding inside. <laughs> <laughs> it has a, it has a strip of turf too. So we'll do some sled pushes or the kids will run hurdles and, goofy stuff like that awesome um if we just dive into the weeds ever so slightly your your floor um is also antibacterial or sort of um how did, without giving away trade secrets how does that work oh well yeah i mean it's, it's it's the rubber floor the same floor we use in um commercial you know college and professional sports gyms i mean it's the exact same floor we would use say at the uh, oh gosh uh the patriots or university of wherever you know, it's the same stuff so uh and part of it is an r&d for me because i want to use it every day day in day out understand the, the goods the bads and the uglies of it how easy it is to clean and how you know it's nice having a floor though that you don't really worry about you know because my, my son's he was walking on top of my power rack so his feet were eight feet off the ground and he fell of course because he's six at the time and 
uh, he cracked his wrist. I got like a, a, an interesting type of like a crumple type fracture, but had it been, you know, concrete, he would have probably been a compound fracture or could have killed him. So, you know, it's a good investment. <laughs> yeah. The, um, health and, health and safety, uh, go, goes big time when, when kids start to climb around on things. Eh? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, exactly. And I kind of thought when I put that wall, that wall climbing stuff up, but then I had an extra, a memory foam mattress. And so I just got a, like a faux leather topper for that. So it kind of looks cool and, and stays kind of dirt free. And so I put it below the, the, um, the climbing wall. So they have eight inches thick of foam. So probably won't die if they fall off of that. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, maybe Kai or Laura, or one of those real tough people would just, you know, not go with that, but I'm not as tough as they are. <laughs> you know, Kai told, once told the story of take, taking up, someone up a mountain and, and yeah, they were afraid of heights. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's special. She's, she's a really, really cool girl. And, and, uh, and I'm glad you got Brady on here too. I, I'm interested to see how, uh, to, to listen to that. Brady's a great guy. Good as a lifting and hunting partner of mine and been friends for years. Awesome, mate. So, um, he was, obviously uh talked highly of you how, how do you bring someone like that into into the realm of strength conditioning and big blokes and um massive, <laughs> massive prs and all that sort of stuff uh well we we got introduced uh i can't remember exactly where maybe a shot show four or five years ago and then yeah, some of our it's... other events that we would uh both you know be whether it's a, a veteran event that we were sponsoring or helping out he might have been doing the same and helping out or volunteering um I think I, at one point I took a, I was invited to take a selections based um, kind of course competition called smoke check. And he was one of the instructors. And so we just kept running into each other and, you know, it's kind of the, I always S E T. So set is kind of the acronym. Uh, So struggle, eat and talk. I found to be the perfect uh, recipe for, diving in with someone and seeing if that's someone that you want in your life. And so if you, if you've done those three things with them and they still pass the smell test, mm-hmm. um, it, it's one of those things that usually the relationship kind of goes further and further. But Brady is definitely one of those guys that, you know, a couple of years in we're, we're sitting in a tent for a week in the mountains of Montana going after elk. And he learned a lot about somebody sharing a 10 by 10 tent with them for a week. So, yep. Absolutely, man. So what does, what does hunting look like for you? Hunting for me, uh, what it looks like is, is varied as possible is how I see it. And this was, that's what my goal for it is. So it's, it's passion. I love it. I love being in the outdoors. I, I wouldn't say I hate the indoors, but I, I tolerate it. You know, um, I love being outside. I love the fresh air. I love the sun. I love the cold. I love the wind. I love the rain. I love all that because that's when you know you're alive. Um, so I do a good bit of it, but I try to vary my experiences as much as possible. You know, some people say, well, are you a, you're a gun hunter or a bow hunter or they see me shooting a bow. They go, oh, cool. You're a bow hunter too. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a bow hunter and a gun hunter and a shotgun hunter and a pistol hunter and a spear hunter and a whatever. I, I want all the experiences. And I, a friend of mine's a green beret and they talk about um, in their line of work that you have to be proficient with any weapon found on the battlefield. And that's kind of how I see my hunting adventure. I want to be proficient in procuring meat and, and going after my adventure 
with whatever tool I happen in my hand. And I'm somewhat agnostic about that of if it's a bow, I want to really learn how to do it because that's a new challenge. If it's a long range rifle, that's a thousand yard shoot, then I want to learn that. And some people say, well, you know, a thousand yards, you know, a thousand shooting an animal from a thousand yards is this X, Y, and Z. Well, they could in, insert whatever they'd like to. And that's fine. That's completely their prerogative to do so. Um, I wouldn't say it's easy. Mm. <laughs> I've never done it, but they, 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 I, I like, I'm interested in weaponized math and that's what it is at that point. And so it's just a different challenge. And so being coming from a throwing background, cause I was a hammer thrower. That's the one reason why I know Derek, cause he and I competed against one another. So I was at the, Olympic level hammer throwing and which is basically becomes strength math. It's, it's physics, it's understanding force vectors and tangential forces and how to produce and accept those forces to make a 16 pound ball go really far. Mm-hmm. So I see a lot of it from a side of whether shooting a bow further or a rifle further, they always want to push that envelope, make something a little bit more difficult and see if I could, if I could challenge it and win. Nice. Um, and what, what's it like being a big bloke trying to sneak up on? <laughs> Tiring. <laughs> Tiring. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm probably not the quintessential best uh, hunter size for a spot and stock. Uh, 6'3", I, I go between 230 and 250, uh, 100 pounds. Um, belly crawling is interesting. I'm getting better at it. You know, it's just, it's just a lot of mass to move around, but there's certainly people that are larger than me that do it effectively. So that's, that's, that's how that goes. You know, um, I was, I had got the chance to do some, um, Arizona last year, a mule deer spot and stock, uh, archery hunt on public land last year. And man, you talk about difficult from a standpoint of hiking and carrying, you know, obviously your load over some ground that, surprisingly i didn't realize it was going to be so difficult to walk on because of just these weird rocks and it it, it was just it was just totally ankle breaker type terrain Mm. um so to carry a pack on that and and do that and then you know you see a a deer a mile and a half two miles out and you're hoping he beds down and once he does you go on this i would say the first mile or so is just a fast hike and then the last half mile, it becomes a slow deal. And then the last three or 400 yards, it becomes a, a stalk. And then the last 200 yards, it becomes a belly crawl or more. Um, so I think I put a post one time that said, you know, true love is flying thousands of miles to drive hundreds of miles to crawl the last quarter mile, you know, <laughs> and that was what it was, you know, and, and that you, you get up from a hunt and I, I say it was a successful hunt because I got 38 yards from a a mature bedded buck the wind changed felt the wind on the back of my neck and he jumped up and was gone you know but i still think it was a successful hunt because i got to test that test myself and test that animal on the terms that he is in a much much more advantageous position uh and i got within bow range of him it just didn't work out he didn't stand up before the wind shifted and so he's still running around and maybe i'll see him next year but you know, I think we both won. Absolutely. And um, that's the beautiful thing about hunting. Well, what I think about hunting is the failure rate's very fast, but it's also, <laughs> it's also um, can be quickly reframed as a success because the learning curve is yes. so steep. 
Oh, absolutely. I, it was 30 seconds after that buck ran and I already thought I, I should have dropped down and, you know, I should have dropped down the hill again and gone over another 70 yards and got below him. Cause I knew that wind was going to shoot, you know, you start already fixing it and you go, uh-huh. Okay. That's what the game plan will be next time. And of course, next time it'll change, but that's fine. Um, there's certainly easier ways to procure your meat, <laughs> you know, but it's, but that's the fun of it. That's the challenge. Um, you know, buying, buying things at the store really kind of takes the middleman and puts the middleman in there and kind of takes the fun out of it. The, the process is the fun stuff. Yeah. Um, and when you talk about training and you, and you talked about things that you never considered, you know, terrain, et cetera, do you think there's any real thing that you can do to train for a big hunter like that? <laughs> well, it's like a sport, right? So you kind of have to, you have to really look at your, your environment and your, your variables, right? So it's like, can you train for hammer throwing? Sure. You have to know what the rules are. You have to know how big the hammer is, how much it weighs, how much space you have to create force and velocity. But it's much different than training for steeplechase. You have to know what those rules are and what those conditions are. So say training for hunting, it's not a, there are some similarities, but training for hunting in Missouri um, during the rut on a, on a still hunt where you're sitting is considerably different than Arizona on a spot and stock. You know, I would say training for Missouri is carrying a big pack and a chair and a blind and all this other stuff. So it's a heavy, heavy load going in and you might walk a mile. And then how do you figure out how to stay warm for the next 12 hours? Cause you're not going anywhere. Now it doesn't sound like training necessarily would be the, the thing, but there's still caloric needs and things like that, that you have to be able to basically carry this mini camp with you. Um, and there's a different skill set involved, but then there's more of an, an active style hunt. So there's static and dynamic and that just, so to answer your question, can you train for it? Sure. But you have to know what your variables are, um, for a specific Arizona hunt. I would do more ankle strengthening exercises, maybe walking on soft sand, unstable surfaces, things like that. I'm not a guy that's a big like BOSU ball, Airx pad guy, but going into next year's Arizona's hunt, 30 days out, I'll start doing more of that just to get used to it. Because three days into the hunt, I was used to it, but the first two days almost killed me. Hmm. Um, no matter how strong I was, how my wind was, how my altitude um, ability was, the ankles killed me. And I didn't see that one coming. Yeah, so. especially with the pack on, um, or even without the pack going on, on sort of moving, bouldery, rocky stuff. On. Right, yeah. Um, Everything's the size of like a bald fist to a softball that you're walking on constantly. And you just, I, I was shocked. I just kind of went ahead and decided I'll probably leave here with a sprained ankle. That's probably how this is going to work. And you just go, okay, I'll hold on as long as I can until I get injured and have to get taken out of the game. And then the end of the week, and you're like, oh, cool. I didn't get hurt. <laughs> I totally expected it, but I didn't get hurt. Yeah. So I'll do some a little bit more work this coming year getting ready for it. And it doesn't matter what boots you have, whatever. It's just, you know, I'm a 230, 40-pound man with a 40-something pound pack that's high up because I'm tall. And it's just a lot wobbling around over not huge ankles and walking on softballs. So you just got to do the math on it. So. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, you have these apprehensions about things and, and um, a couple of podcasts ago, I talked about going on this hunt where we stuck to the valley, we played it safe, but had we, right. had, had, we had someone there to say, you know, there's probably a bit, you know, there's nothing here. Let's try out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and you go, oh, no, it's too steep or oh, oh, we might fall. And actually you watch plenty of people do it and you go, right, 
well, maybe next time right. we'll, we'll go do that. How, how, how many more things are you going to try this time, do you think? Uh, yeah, you, you just, I, I don't know. Like, but, but, you're, but you're right. I mean, in generally the animals stay high because guess what? That's the hardest place to get to them, <laughs> you know? And some of those things that guys do, like, my gosh, some of those sheep hunts and things like that, mountain goat, and uh, I don't know if I'm tough enough for that. I like to think I am. The man inside me says I am, but the, the, <laughs> the realistic man says, I don't know. I, uh, I mean, I'm sure I could do it if I had to, but I don't know if I'm going to sign up for something that difficult. I hope I get to a place where I could do that because those guys, in my opinion, are some ultimate predators that are able to go at these enormous elevations and, and and it's a mountaineering hunt not just a mountain hunt i mean it's a, there's a different thing involved in that so i don't know i'm I, most of my hunting really is done in south carolina which is we're only 200 elevation sea level but we have to deal with swamps and waste deep water and rattlesnakes and water moccasins and alligators and mosquitoes and ticks and so just the fight is different right you know you're you're much as likely to get your boots lost in the swamp and get snake bit as you are to trip over a softball sized rock. So it's, you know, every, every, the wild is, the wild is trying to kill you regardless of wherever you are. <laughs> I'm sure somewhat like in Australia or, or, you know, all that down there is, I've never been, but it seems like a, a similar scenario as for our South. Yeah, New, Ze- New Zealand, the uh, weather and conditions might get you. Definitely Australia, I think everything might get you. Um, even, even last night walking back from the beach, there was a snake with its, I guess it was its head stuck in a wall and <laughs> trying to shed or something. But yeah, it was, it was like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, New Zealand is a place that, gosh, I, that, that is definitely a bucket list item uh, for me. I'd love to hunt some red stag and some things down there, deer or whatever. Uh, it just looks so gorgeous. And I mean, there's just so much down there. I'd like to see it's, it's just, just hard to get there. <laughs> yeah. the, the world is a, um, intriguing place. That's for sure. And, um, us from our perspective, we, you know, we're always trying to get to the States or to Europe and you guys are honest. <laughs> it's kind of a little yeah. place part of the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that, that's interesting that you say like the, the world is a, is a beautiful and awesome place. And I generally get along well with people that realize that. Um, I don't generally do the whole negative thing. I don't like people around me that are very negative because I believe there's, there's so much good in this world. There's so, there's so many good people. There's so many opportunities. Um, and it just, I don't know how people can't see it. And I, and I'm not saying that situations don't lend themselves to depression. I don't want to downplay that but I have just a hard time understanding if people don't see the beauty, maybe even outside of people. Cause sometimes people can be shitty. I get it. Um, but look for those amazing people. Like look, look for the, look for the best in people and give yourself the opportunity to see it. Even if you're going to get burned sometimes, mm-hmm. but you, I believe you have to look for that beauty. You have to look for that, that positive. Um, because if you want to just go on a hunt and find the negative, you sure should find it. Um, but that that sounds like a horrible thing to go and do. Why would I try to go find all the pitfalls in this world? I'd rather go see the beauty. And I think when you, if you can look at your life that way, then we got deep real fast on this, but I think if you look at your life that way, um, you know, every day is a new adventure and every day is something you're looking forward to by instead of being a drag. Mm-hmm. So I don't see it. And, and so how does that sort of mindset fit in? Like you guys, uh, um, 
you know, there's you and you and your pops, your dad. Um, yeah. You you guys are locked into to something that's that's you know it's a it's a weight machine and it's and it's <laughs> and you guys you guys have managed to turn it into a thing of beauty. Um, but you guys need to, need need to be there and, and construct this and, and have a base. But yeah, it's a monster. It's yeah. a monster, and it's a monster that eats. You know, that's what you don't realize. You, you get this train started, and it's a little wagon, and then you're like, you get, you build it up, you build it up, you build it up, and then you go, okay, this thing has momentum, and it eats coal. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's 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 a thing now. You know, and so it's no longer Bert and Pop or Bert and Pop's little dream, or it's so much bigger than two people. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a yeah, it's a, a factory, and it's 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 employees and whatever, but it's also a movement and a mindset, and but that's part of the goal, right? Because if you could help create something that outgrows its creator, mm. that's, that's when you have actual relevance. And that's when you're actually impacting the world. Because otherwise, if Bert Soren dies in the next 20 minutes, um, if all I was was a guy that was a purveyor of fine weightlifting equipment, <laughs> uh, then, that, then that ends, right? And then that's, that's a pretty selfish existence, in my opinion, because all that did is put money in my pocket. So if we're able to do something beyond that. Um, in my opinion, you could actually impact the world that's less self-centered. Sure. Am I going to have a great life from it? Yeah. But there's been some crappy days too. I mean, it's, it's the the ride isn't without the rain, you know, like there's a lot of stuff in there, but, um, that's how I view it. I think we're, we've been blessed in so many ways that far exceed our abilities or, I mean, people are like, oh, you guys deserve it. And I'm like, ah, I call BS on that. I don't deserve anything. My dad doesn't deserve anything. Like, literally, there are people that have gone through much harder things. Have we done through some hard things? Have we come up with some cool things? Yes. But there are people that have worked much harder, done way cooler stuff, and endured much, much more that unfortunately, because of circumstance, context, where they live, what their support system is, or just plain luck their life in many ways isn't as good as mine. Does that, does you can't convince me that I deserve shit. Mm. Um, and I think if you feel like you deserve something all the time, I deserve a chance. I like to hope. Um, but people that, that feel like they're deserving of something so much, I believe that's just another word of saying entitled. Mm. And I don't ever want to be entitled to anything. Um, I want to work for it. And like our friend Judd Logan says, he's like, I don't want it to be easy. I just want a chance. Hmm. And that's in his fight right now with leukemia. He's uh, he and I talked last night and he goes, he goes, Bert, if, if they've clinically proven that a strong support system, great friends, positive energy, exercise, great medical attention, um, you know, great food, all this other stuff is essential to winning the fight against cancer. He's like, I'm golden. That's what I've done my whole life. You know, he said, this is, this is just another workout. I'm considering this a, a four week fall workout that just sucks. I'm going to get through it and then I'll move on to the next phase and we'll move on to the next phase. And that's just how this is. And you look at it and you're like, yeah, does he deserve to go through what he's going through right now? Absolutely not. That guy's done more for my surrounding world and people I know than most people I know, but guess what he is. And but his mindset on it is I'm going through a workout. If anyone could survive it, it's me. 
And I don't want it to be easy. All I wanted there is to be a chance because you tell people, someone said to him, they go, well, what did I say? They, they go, well, this is unfair. You don't deserve it or whatever. He goes, no, he goes, listen, there's 30 something people that died last week <clears throat> in a tornado. They didn't ask for that. They didn't deserve it. And they don't have a choice anymore. Uh, there's people that got killed yesterday from drunk driving. They don't have a choice anymore. They can't fight it. He's like, I could still fight. I have that choice. He's like, so by that I have that choice, I'm gladly taking this burden on because all I have to do is fight mm. and I have a choice. And so I prefer to look at the world like that and say, you know, the only time you, you know, really failure, people say, oh, failure is an option. It's like, no, failure. In my opinion, failure doesn't exist. It's just delayed success. Mm. And you go after it and you go after it and you go after it and you go after it. And eventually you win or you don't. And then that's the day you die. And then who cares at that point anyway, right? So then your entire life in some ways was never a failure. You were just, you were just learning. It was the process and you were getting to go on the adventure the whole time. So I don't know. I guess I'll look at life a little bit differently, but I think, um, no, I think it's an okay way to look at it. Absolutely. And that, <clears throat> a little gratitude always goes a long way, especially if, if you're in a, in a bad spot. Would you, would you class yourself as an optimist or a pragmatist? <laughs> optimist, no question. Optimist. I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm sure I like how you said pragmatist versus uh, <laughs> I don't understand even scientifically how you could do it a different way because I believe the lens and someone, I'm sure someone has a different vein on it or whatever. And, and they they could very well be right. Be right. Maybe that's part of it. How, whatever you think is right probably is because you're going to buy into it and you're going to go after it with passion. But I've also learned that I can look at things positively or negatively, the exact same context that'll change my, how my body reacts, how my mind reacts, how my emotions react. And I've never seen looking at something through a negative light bring positivity to my life. How can you filter something with a negative filter and ever it bring positive? You're all, if you're always looking for the negative, you'll sure as crap find it. So if I filter everything positively, generally I find positive. Yeah. Do I get burned sometimes? Yep. Yeah. It's a small price to pay for the rest of your life being pretty awesome. You know, I would, I would, people say, well, I'd rather expect nothing and expect the worst and then get surprised every once in a while. I was like, it sounds horrible. It's like punching yourself in the face every day and maybe one day you forget to do it. And you're like, oh man, this day is awesome. I didn't get punched in the face today. It's like, that doesn't make sense. But again, that's my, that's my perspective. I'm sure it's probably wrong, but I've made it 42 years so far with it. No, I said, I think, um, Bruce Lipton has something about, you know, if you're thinking a certain way, then your neurochemistry is a certain way, so then your hormones are right. a certain way, and then thing, things go on. And I'm, and I'm sure, you know, in your, in your years of athletic training and then going after lifting heavy things, if you're thinking, oh, I probably can't lift this, then, then you probably can't lift it. Yeah, I think Henry Ford says that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that, that's, that's always what it boils down to. If people know that it's proven that, that, that faith and hope is built from believing you have a chance. Well, believing you have a chance is a positive outlook. So if, again, if you go negative, then are you believing there's not a chance? And at that point, I, don't even, I would be paralyzed at that point. I wouldn't even, the, the operating system would not understand how to work at that point if I didn't believe there was a chance for success. I, that doesn't make sense to me. There's always a chance. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's only one and maybe it's a one in a million, but like I was talking to Judd, you know, he was talking about, you know, the percentages or the odds or whatever. And I kind of joked with him. I said, well, what percentage of the population makes an Olympic team ever as being a walk on, uh, in track and field like he was, I said, what, what percentage of the population makes four Olympic teams? What percentage of the population holds world records? What percentage of the population puts someone at the Olympics from your group for like a 30 year period of time every four years? What percentage of people have hundreds of people that have come out of their tree of influence who've become professionals and are making an impact in the world? I said, that's only in one phase of your life. I said, the percentages of all that stuff happening are so low. If you start looking at percentages that you would say they're impossible. But I know the guy because I'm sitting there talking to him that he's, that he's done it. And so I go, F percentages. It doesn't matter. Like, there's always a chance. There's always hope. And you keep pushing because there's always hope. I believe it has to be that way. Otherwise, I don't know how the system would work. I, I just don't get it. It's like not having gas in the engine. It just won't work. But maybe someone does it. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, that, that's- maybe I'm not smart enough to do it that way. <laughs> that's powerful because as, as I talked to you yesterday, that's exactly what this is about. That little bit of proof, that little bit of, um, like you said, you, you know, the guy, um, there's yeah. you know, someone's done it. Someone can do it. Someone's done it. Yeah. yeah. Someone's done it. So all I got to do is prove it can be done again. Yeah. And someone will, and why not be that guy? <laughs> you know, or why not that be me? And that's what I always saw. You know, I was never recruited athlete, never was, it was, I sucked. Um, but when I got into a system with a good coach and a good mentor and, and then Judd became my mentor later on. And, and he told me one day we were, I was training for the 2000 Olympic trials and he goes, gosh, he goes, you're really negative. I'm like, really? I thought that I was pretty positive guy. He goes, no. And I love that he was able to level with me. He goes, you give yourself a reason to fail. So what do you mean? He goes, well, when we talked today, he said, I asked how training was going and you said, well, I pulled my hamstring three weeks ago, but it's going better. He goes, that's great that you turned it into going better. He said, but you prefaced it with something negative, thus psychologically giving yourself an out for a lack of performance. He's like, you were going ahead and giving the caveat of when I suck later on today, or if I suck later on today, it's because I've already told you there's a reason that I'm going to suck. He's like, but you've done that three or four times in this conversation. So you're setting yourself up for an automatic out of failure because you think there's a chance of that happening. He's like, I never believe I'm going to fail. And another thrower, a friend of mine, Adam Nelson, you know, I, I looked up to him so much because he had almost this, almost a drunken belief. He literally believed that every throw he was about to take was going to be the world record. Hmm. He, he believed it to his core for like eight or 10 years, never hit the world record. He won at world championships. He won at Olympics. He won, you know, got second in a couple of things. I mean, like he was always a medalist. He was super dominant, but he believed that when he stepped into that ring, the next throw was the one. And he held that, that feeling in his heart and in his mind and his, in his, in his countenance for like literally a whole generation of shot putters. And I just never could understand that. Now this is a guy that was six feet tall, 250 pounds, which as a shot putter is tiny. And he would just go out there and he would always say, today's a great day to throw. And today's the day, today's the day, today's the day. And 
I was looking, I said, well, gosh, after all that evidence and the evidence being that if it doesn't happen, every time it doesn't happen, how do you not make that a case like you're on trial in your mind, make that a case against what you're saying, right? Your espouse theory that today's a great day to throw on about to throw a world record. Okay, well, that one wasn't the world record. Yep, but the next one is. Well, that one wasn't. Well, okay, but the next one is. Well, that one was. At what point does your mind stop crying wolf? Hmm. And, the, and you start believing, okay, this might not happen. But I believe that once he would have ever believed that it probably wasn't going to happen, he was sunk. Hmm. And so he just, he never let go of it. And he had an amazing career. He had some, I think, top four or five throw of the world of all time. And arguably, he was the smallest good shot putter in our generation. Um, so he, he broke all the molds. They were, when he made his first uh, junior national team, uh, one of the coaches told him, he said, make sure you take pictures because you'll never make another international team again. You're too small. Hmm. That was 20 years before he won the Olympics. Or uh, 12 years. So you just look and you go, if he would have believed that, then that would have been the evidence that he needed to the contrary that he was going to be a champion. And then his whole life and career would have changed. So I look to people like that, whether it be Judd or Adam or some other people I know, and, and to audit my own self-talk and go, how am I looking at this situation? How do I feel about myself? How do I feel about this person in my life or whatever it may be? Um, and I think it's so powerful. And, and those were, that's when extraordinary things can happen. But and I'm addicted to extraordinary experiences and extraordinary people. And so I want to, if I find someone that, that has that, that spark, that fire, that belief system, I want to do everything I can to pour into their lives because much like a, a little kid on the, on the playground, you know, Hey, look at my little toy. I'll show it to you. And if you like it, will you show me your toy and then let's play together? It's not much more convoluted or, complicated than that you know if i find someone that i'm just like yeah they're doing life right then i say what can i do to bring value to their life so maybe they'll let me stick around 10 minutes longer so i could maybe be a part of their life and be valuable within their life and if i could help them i could push them up higher and and hopefully they're already a 9.9 .9. maybe i could help them in some way make them be a 10 and that becomes a win for me. If I could watch someone that I could help get better, I don't have to, I don't care if they're better than me or not. I, I like, I like seeing people succeed. But the interesting part of it is when you do that, you get pulled up too. And then that person, if they're not a jerk, they generally go, Hey, well, you've helped me. Well, I'll help you as well. And then I, that's how I believe relationships and kind of an economy of a relationship works. If you're, if you go into it saying, what can I get out of this relationship? It's the wrong economy because then what happens, the other person mirrors your interaction style and your intent. And then they start thinking, what can I get out of this guy? Hmm. And then at some point it's going to be a race to who could get the most out of the other one. And then it, and it unfolds. I mean, it just unfolds. And that's what happens, I believe, in marriages. I think that happens in regular relationships. When people stop trying to build up the other person more than themselves, they start trying to make it a, a, a typical business deal. And they try to always get the angle on the other guy and a negotiation and everything like that. Negotiating with my friends is the furthest thing I want to think about doing. That sounds detestable. To try to see what I could get out of somebody, 
I would rather just not be friends with them. I don't want to disrespect them in that way. Whew. Powerful, man. <laughs> um, you're saying about Adam there being, you know, of, of a smaller build for a shot putter and um, anybody who's met Tom Walsh will not think that Tom Walsh is a small guy, but relative. Yeah, to, how big is Tom? Um, he's big, but like right. I, 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 I house sat for him and, and his bed was oh, buggered. Nice. His bed was buggered, so I didn't sleep there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but nice. Yeah, you know, you see him up against the other guys, and you go, oh, he's, he's not, not a big guy. Right. Yeah, no. sure. He looks like kind of a pseudo normal size human. Yeah. <laughs> but he's yeah. not massive. No, he's not at all. Gosh, he's so fast out of the back of the ring, too. It's it's crazy watching him. He's 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 an interesting guy. I've never met him, but I've I've of course keep up with the throws world still and he's been fun to watch. Uh his um yeah, I wonder if people like Adam are, are, are one of his little small proofs for for doing what he does. Yeah, he would have he would have to be. He would yeah. have to be, you know, and that, that's one of those things. You just, you're exactly right. The small proof, this guy did it. That guy did it. Okay. That's all I needed. I don't, I don't need easy. I just need a chance. Yeah. And, and I think, I think for Tom as well, he's, he's lucky and his coach Dale was, you know, as well from the bottom of the world from, from Australia did, did great things. He played professional rugby and like, Hey, it's, again, it's a little bit of small proof um, yep. to, to do that. And, um, you said something there about like getting a, a reality check on your mindset. And I think the more and more I do these podcasts, that's what, you know, I, for years I sort of, you know, with, with swimming, I, I chased, chased swimming goals and that was always time. And then um, sure. soccer football, it's, you know, chasing teams, getting, getting to be in the position you want. And then I changed to rugby and, you know, um, was on the fringe of a couple of rugby sevens provincial teams. And, you know, you think, oh, sure. You know, you look back and go, what were the, what were the little aspects or what were the limiting beliefs that, that stopped me there? And, and then right. now I'm, you know, probably finished playing rugby and, you know, wanting, wanting to get more into hunting and it's like, and, and move forward with business and stuff. And it's like, well, what, what can I learn from all this? What has all this built me up for? And, and, you know, what now, what, am, what do I need to eliminate from my thinking to move forward? And, yes. And be, and be great. So how, how does, you know, you guys be legendary. Where, where does that come from? <laughs> um, it, it comes from the mindset of just trying to do extraordinary things. And extraordinary, let me define that. It doesn't necessarily mean climbing, climbing Everest or, you know, chasing down an elk with a spear or doing something like off the radar crazy. Extraordinary sometimes just means having a having a more candid conversation with someone that is normal. Mm. Um, and extraordinary just means kind of like, if you look at the, a chart that says it has a line of what the mediocre or mundane or expected, I guess really the expected would be, are you above that line or not? And in your actions and that, again, it doesn't have to be super high Red Bull induced crazy fest, you know, and sometimes it's just, it's the little things, you know, it's saying something or calling somebody or, or trying something. And there's quiet hours that you're by yourself and, and asking the questions that you're asking right now, or maybe going, Hey, I didn't make this team or I didn't make this one. Am I going to say that the other guys were on drugs? Am I going to say the other guys were doing this or doing that there? Or you just go, Hey, listen, I don't believe I made the team because of 
these two things. I don't know or not, but it's a scientific experiment. And now I'm going to take those two things. I'm going to eliminate those or I'm going to rectify those. And I'm going to run the test again. And I'm going to see in my next endeavor, can I do better? And unfortunately, that's an extraordinary mindset. Most people are going to sit there and still go, yeah, but that guy was seven feet tall and hey, I can't beat that guy. Or yeah, you know, those dudes are doing this or X, Y, Z or whatever. You know, you, you know all the excuses. Hmm. Um, shit, maybe not making excuses. That's pretty extraordinary. Hmm. You know, and so, I don't know, that's kind of what I, I see to be legendary as and it, it's not as highlight film you know that's always fun to watch on youtube or whatever but sometimes it's just it's the day in and day out how you do anything is how you do everything um and it's more of a, a war cry i hope to people to to try to live above that line of expected or mediocre um and whatever that is they do i don't care just, just go after it you know if you want to <laughs> Do whatever. I don't care the context of it, but go after it if you're going to do it. Don't half-ass it. You know, I had had another one. Someone talked to me straight. And usually really candid conversations are the ones that hit me the hardest and actually elicit a change. So 2006 or 2007, I had gotten done throwing hammer uh, 2000 and 2004 Olympic trials. Didn't make the team. Actually, Judd Logan bumped me out of finals on my on his last throw. So thanks, Judd. <laughs> um, so I retired from hammer throwing, just knew the price that it was going to take to uh, get to back to that level and stay at that level or get to the level I wanted to be was just a price I couldn't pay. Socially, economically, time-wise, just couldn't do it. At the moment. So I got out of sport, was out for about a year, went through some hard stuff with some family health issues, and then uh, got back in the Highland Games. And we were kind of like, hey, I'm going to try these out. I've done them, played around with them before. They look kind of fun. So went for about a year and I was at a game and this guy named uh, Casey Cummins comes up to me. He was the athletic director of the event. And I, that day, I think I won out of seven events. I'd won four events, set field records in those four, but then had you know, like dead last and fifth and fifth and the other three, you know, whatever. I was good at what I was good at and I didn't train what I was bad at. Mm-hmm. And that was how that was. So at the time he walked up and he was like, Hey, I was like, hi, how are you? I'm Bert Soren. Nice to have, you know, nice to be here. Thank you for having us throw. And he goes, Oh, you're Bert. I was like, yeah, man. Yeah, great. I'm thinking like, Hey, this is kind of cool. I don't know what reputation precedes me, but that's kind of nice to be somewhat known. But then I found out what reputation preceded me with his next sentence. He said, you're the one that they said would be really good if you would try. <sighs> and I'm like, wait, what? And he goes, yeah, everyone knows that you don't train, but you came from the Olympic hammer background. And, you know, they said, if you took this seriously, you could be one of the greats. And some people will might see that as a, as a compliment. I saw that as the biggest kick in the nuts I could have ever received. Because what you just told me was that I'm not respecting the sport. I'm not respecting this time. I'm not respecting my competitors. I'm not respecting myself. I'm not respecting my name. I wasn't taught to not try. Uh, I wasn't taught to half-ass things. Um, I was taught to go after things and, and be legendary. And so what I was told by someone I barely knew was, your reputation is that you half-ass things. Screw that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that I walked away from that competition. I got second at that competition because I got 
like I said, I did really well in some, but I got my ass handed to me in the other events. And I went home and I just, I just decided, I was like, okay, regardless if you like the sport or not, you can't, you either need to stop, but never be known as the guy who kind of tried. And uh, so I said, okay. And I called actually Randy Strosen at Milo magazine. And I said, what is the national championship for the Highland games? And he told me, he said, the Pleasanton North American championships, whatever it was. I said, where's that? He said, Pleasanton, California. I said, when is it? And he said, Labor Day. I said, how do I get in it? And he goes, well, you got to throw really far and get invited. I said, all right, good. And so I hung up the phone <laughs> and, I, and I went to the NASGO web, which is the North, American, uh, North America Scottish Games Association. And I looked on the database and I found every event that I was like, you know, they had the ranking of every event, every athlete. And that was maybe the top 10 or 15 on a couple events that I was good at. And then the other ones, I'm like number 100 or whatever, 150 or something stupid. And at that day, I said, all right, where's the one I'm lowest at? And then I said, what's it going to take for me to get in the top 10? And I saw that, and I just went out and trained until I was throwing those marks. And then I would pick the next event. i say, what's my next lowest? And I would just boom, boom, boom. So in like a four or five-week period of time, maybe eight weeks, I can't remember exact numbers, I went from 53rd in the nation to second in the nation in like that period of time. Now, it's not saying I was so good in this whatever, whatever, but I was – I had a new passion, a new purpose to prove to myself that that wasn't going to be what was written on when I walked up that I can't be that guy. Uh, so that I got to compete at the Pleasanton games. I got an invite because I became the, the small, the lightest athlete ever to throw 40 feet in the, the heavyweight for distance. I think I went from 32 feet to 41 feet in like eight week period of time, which is pretty crazy. Uh, that was what the pros were throwing at that time. I was a light amateur. And so I was able to pick up some big events, but I was putting the effort in. I was, I was working really, really hard. Uh, and then the next year I ended up uh, coming in and winning the first amateur world championships and became pro. And so that was, again, just a, it was a kick in the nuts. It was a, it was realizing, is this where I want to be? Had to be very candid with myself and then put a plan together and just do the work to change that. And, but that had to happen. Otherwise I would have still been the guy that showed up through pretty far, screwed around, didn't train, got second. And then 10 years later, you're sitting there having beers with your buddies and they're like, Oh yeah, you would have been the guy that was going to be good, but you never did it. Mm. And I don't think I could have lived with that. I don't think I could have lived knowing that that was actually a thing. Um, so what I did, I, I, I could walk away from the games now knowing that I, you know, I retired years ago, but knowing that I did everything that I could have done to, to give the respect to the competitors and the events and those people that came before me is it's two or 300 year old events. And to know that I did my part to get squeeze every RPM out of what my body could do. Um, I could very easily walk away from the games and know I did my job regardless of what I placed, it doesn't matter, but I did my job. And, but then it was easy too, because I knew, I knew the price I paid for that. And I knew I can't, I can't go back and pay that price, nor, nor would I go back to the games unless I could pay that price because I don't want to disrespect the games. Mm. So. Um, and obviously it's, it's, it goes back to that, um, that process of, of, you know, setting a goal and, and, putting in the work and coming up with a plan and, and executing on it. How, how does it, it? 
how does it feel to show up having become sick, second in the country? You know, does the event sort of happen for itself now? Well, yeah, I mean, it was, it was cool. It, 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 I just always wanted to play with the big boys, right? I mean, that was, to me, a success was <laughs> being the group that, you're, that most people think you shouldn't be in. You know, I always call it the apple cart guy. So when we used to call it breaking up the apple cart. Mm-hmm. And so my goal every time I competed was if I came in ranked seventh, I at least had to come out ranked sixth. And so I wanted to ruin somebody's day. I hate to say it that way, but that was exactly what I went in to do. I went in every time going, you, you, and you are going to think you have me and I'm going to walk away and you're going to go, what the hell did Soren just do? And that was, that was that chip on my shoulder. I always carried. And all that did is, is make me want to go in the ring and, and taste my own blood. Sometimes I just wanted to feel that fight. And I wanted someone to go freaking Soren's in the finals. Really? You know, or Soren's now in the Olympic trials. Really? Soren's ranked in the world in the hammer throw? That guy? <laughs> and I, I just get a rush off of that because I, I like being the underdog. And actually, funny story is the, I basically crapped the bed at the 2004 Olympic trials because it was the first time in my athletic career that I wasn't the underdog. And I didn't know how to handle that. And I got into the ring and I was and actually, again, a Judd Logan story. So. Every year, you know, I was, you know, I'm fighting it out. I'm training by myself. I'm doing all that type of stuff and, you know, running sore next during the day, training in the evening and kind of always fighting through every year. But I had this breakthrough in 2004 and I was bombing and like training went perfectly. Peaking went perfectly. The week before I'm throwing monster PRs and training. It's like, okay, everything's dialing and I'm not going into the national championships injured like every other year. Like I'm set. I'm ready to roll. And I get to the to the meet. We go into warm ups, and I was hoping to throw in the two forties, which would probably got me top three, two hundred forty feet, which was 73, 74 meters right in there. And uh, my PR was in the seventy two area, um, but I was thinking, you know, seventy three, seventy four. If I'm on, this is this could go. You know, first warm ups like seventy two and a half, and I'm like, ooh, okay. Second one seventy three and a half. I'm like, and I'm just. I'm going like 85% speed. I'm like, oh, I felt like I was on nitrous. It was just like, this is clicking a lot. And I'm just thinking, I picked a good day to have a good day. Like, I'm, this is, and, and I'm walking out of the ring and Judd, Lo- and, and for instance, all these other guys are throwing 71, 72, maybe a 73. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm winning the Olympic trials and warmups right now. And I'm not even really trying. And this is freaking me out. And I don't know how to handle this new pressure. I walk out of the ring and Judd walks by and he kind of laughs and he gives me like the happy Gilmore line. He goes, somebody learned how to throw. And I'm just kind of <laughs> like, I looked at him and you know what happened? All the pressure dropped. All the, the excitement dropped because for some reason in my head and emotionally in my adrenal system, believed that I had already accomplished what I was there for. And I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to fight when I didn't have a fight. And I walked into the ring. My first one, I put in the cage. Second one, I put in the cage. And I remember looking around going, what am I doing? And my heart rate was about 75. I wasn't jacked up because I had already, there'd been four years of buildup that had 
that I'd been stressing over. Will I be ready? Will I be ready? Will I be ready? I got to, you know, June 22nd, 2004, I have to be ready. I have to be ready. And when that throw went 73 and a half meters and I'm thinking I'm good for 75 today, that little box in my head said, you did it. You're ready. You did what you're supposed to do. But the, the cruel joke of it was in my lack of maturity competition and I didn't have a coach to bring me back to center was hadn't done anything yet. I still had three throws in the competition to go, mm. which were the three that mattered. So I walked into my first warm up, going, oh, let me just crack this one right out here. Got a little ahead of myself and started pushing. I said, oh, all I got to do is turn the volume up on this one a little bit. Caged it. Boom. Second one. Oh, okay. Well, just do what you got to do. Cage. Boom. And then you're staring down the barrel of, I've trained for four years. I have one throw left to substantiate the last four years of my training. Now you start doing the head game going, my parents are going to say, what were you doing? My friends are going to, I'm thinking all the parties I miss and all the stuff that I did, didn't do and all this other stuff to go. It boils down to this one stupid throw where the the last four years of my life was a waste. And that one almost went in the cage and last minute I hooked it back left sector, pulled it in the ring and I'm sitting in the last place going into finals. I'm like, Bert, 67 and a half meters, five meters, six meters less than I was throwing warmups. It's the worst feeling throw of my entire life. And I'm sitting there going, you just totally boned yourself. What? Get your head out of your ass. And I'm sitting there watching. I think I was maybe like a 10th or 11th place. So they take top 12. I'm watching. John Logan comes up, cranks one off, knocks me 13th. Bert Soren sitting down watching the next day as they go into finals. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what just happened? And Judd, talking about how amazing he is, he tore his forearm on that throw. And so he came, comes up to me later. He says, listen, I can't throw tomorrow. I'm, I'm, I'm torn. I can't throw any further. He goes, you are primed and ready to throw. You have a chance of being on the team, being top three. So he literally went to the Olympic committee and, and asked them if he could pull out of the finals, if it would bump me into position for finals. He's like, you're ready to go. You just need like one or two more throws and you're back in. And uh, so he was going to give up his spot at the Olympic trials for me for in finals. And they told him because the Olympic trial rules, if they pull out, they would go into the finals with only 11 versus 12. Hmm. And, but you look and you go, wow, that's a guy who, He's been to the Olympics four times. He's done. He's in the mentor role, but he was willing to give up his shot definitely for his last Olympics because he believed that a guy coming up under him had the shot of doing it. And so I look at that and think how selfless, how, I mean, as a mentor, like how can you get much better? Now, they didn't let him do it, but that he actually attempted that is something that I don't know if I would have been able to do because I would have still believed I was him that there was a chance. Well, maybe he did too, but maybe he believed my chance was better and he was going to pass that torch on to me. And so I've had people in my life that have done things like that, that, you know, there's so many rules or so many lessons that I learned just from that one experience that one day in 2004. I learned that I generally need things to be pretty hard to, to accomplish them. If it gets too easy, I don't know how to fight from that position. I know how to fight when I'm getting punched. I don't know how to fight when I'm in the couch. And mm-hmm. so I have to keep the pressure up on my life mm-hmm. um, because that's when I perform the best. And so 
I know that was a bit of a ramble, but there's just a lot of things. I just kind of reliving it and just thing insights that I got on that, those experiences. But there again, that was, that was an experience that I wouldn't have got anywhere else, except that I pushed harder than I should have and went from a skinny walk on kid to sitting at the 2004 Olympic trials with even a chance, with even a chance of making an Olympic team because there's zero reason I should have been out there. And, um, so I think I learned something very valuable. You know, I would have rather thrown further and see where that would have taken me, but who knows, right? Right. Uh, and, and I appreciate the ramble because it, it, you know, you, you've managed to take us to some amazing places just then. Um, you, you just mentioned, you know, walk up skinny kid. If you could tell us the story of how you ended up in athletics and, <laughs> and, then, and then also, also the, um, I guess the crossroad moments we had to train with the girls and beat the girls before you were allowed to move. Oh, yeah. You heard that one, huh? Yeah, I thought that was amazing. And especially the, the two girls happened to be some of the best in the world as well. So it was, They sure were. They sure were. Yeah. So I wasn't meant to be a college thrower, especially professional Olympic level. Uh, I was an okay thrower in high school. Okay, like not state championship material, even in a state that was bad at it. Just like pretty suck, you know. <laughs> And it was because I was six feet two, 172 pounds, not extremely strong. I was a late bloomer. I didn't, my mom, I lived with my mom growing up and, you know, bless her, but she's a little person. She's five feet two and 105 pounds. And so she views how, how a boy should eat was based on what she would think someone would need to eat. Uh, so I was, I remember I was telling my wife, I was like, I was hungry for like 18 years, like just always hungry. I didn't know it until I was able to actually eat as much as I really, really wanted to. But it was like, you know, I was eating half the amount that I think I was hungry, but you just get used to it. But anyway, that's a side story. So anyway, um, I went to the university of South Carolina only because I tried to go to Appalachian state university, which is more of an outdoor school, but, uh, I didn't, I didn't get in on time. I didn't get my application in on time, blah, blah, blah. And so they said, well, you come in the spring semester. I said, all right, well, South Carolina was honestly my second choice. It's right here in town, 10 miles from my house. So I'll go there, get some classes knocked out, you know, kind of the typical thing. I'm 17 at that point. So I don't know anything. I just thought, Hey, I'm getting out of the house. I'm going to get chase chicks. I want to drink some beer. Um, it'll, it'll be like every eighties movie. It'll be awesome. You know, that's what I viewed college as like, like revenge and the nerds pretty much. Um, so, uh, so I, I got there and drank for like six straight days and partied and it was like, Hey, this is great. You know, I love it. And then of course classes start about a week later. So I had to go to class and, um, so that was interesting. And then I come home, uh, I come home to my dorm room and I go, well, I need to lift weights. You know, that that's, I, I lifted at the time, although I wasn't extremely strong. I lifted and I, so I called dad and I knew that Sorenex said we had built the, some of the weightlifting equipment of the athletic uh, weight room. And although I was not, uh, not a student athlete, I wasn't allowed to uh, per se uh, train there, but that was in 1994 when rules were pretty fuzzy. And so I called dad and I said, Hey, can you call the coach and see if I can go in there and train because the equipment's better. And he said, yeah, let me see what I could do. So he calls him. Coach is like, yeah, sure. Tell him to come in after the athletes are here. Uh, it's five o'clock or whatever. And so I'm 17. I don't pay attention to what time he says. So I just get done with my classes that day. I eat a burrito and I say, okay, cool. I go down to the waiter. Well, if you've ever been in a collegiate uh, or a university athletic t uh, weight room, two o'clock 
on like a Tuesday is absolute bedlam. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody's out of class. Everyone's going to practice or just got out of practice. And it's just people everywhere. Now, University of South Carolina had one weight room at a time for all the sports. So like it's maybe 10,000 square feet and there's 200 athletes in there. There's every, every sport's just rambling around and it's early part of the season. So um, the early part of the year. So people don't even really know who's who yet because everyone just got to campus. <clears throat> that was before they had where the, each team had to wear their South Carolina gear or whatever. So everyone's just like in normal workout clothes. It's like a freaking gym. I walk in there, I start doing some power cleans <laughs> and then I'm doing those. There's kind of fun. And I look over and they're doing some vertical jump testing. <clears throat> so I, I get in line. If you've seen the movie Forrest Gump, that was kind of like, I saw a line. So I stood in it, <laughs> you know, that was, that was kind of what it was. And so in some ways I feel like my life has been very Forrest Gumpian. Um, so I stood in the line, we did the vertical jump testing. They measured and everything at 29 and a half inches. And he was like, Hey, that's pretty good. And I was like, okay, cool. I don't know what that means, but great. So I went back and did some bench press <clears throat> and then I look over and they're doing body fat testing. I'm like, I'm pretty lean. Like I said, I'm six to two, one seventy two. <clears throat> so I was like, that's kind of cool. Let me, I've never had that done. So they're doing caliper tests. So I go over there and pull up my shirt to do the uh, abdomen test. There's a guy sitting in a chair and I, he goes, okay, what sport? And I'm like, oh gosh, like, here we go. I'm not, I'm not loving this. Like I, I'm getting kind of nervous. And so of course I do the little white lie that every 17 year old would do. And I said, uh, well, I'm, I'm, my name's Bert. I'm coming out for track and field in the spring. He goes, oh really? What event? And I'm like, why is this guy asking questions? So I said, uh, shot and discus. And he goes, okay. He goes, did you throw it? I said, yeah, I threw it in high school. I wasn't very good. He goes, oh, what did you get the state championship? I said, I didn't make a state championship. He goes, oh, well, how far did you throw? I'm like, why are you asking this question? I said, 134 and 44 feet or whatever it was. He goes, oh, that's not very far. Right. I know. I've already said that and stop being a jerk. You know, I'm kind of big, being an a-hole a little bit to this like adult because he's just <laughs> riding me a little bit. He's kind of making fun of me when he's saying this stuff. I'm like, yeah, I get it. And he goes, all right, well, my name is Larry Judge. I'm the throws coach at the University <laughs> of South Carolina. And so I, I was sitting there thinking, out of everyone I could have told this white lie to, you're the only person on this entire campus and probably like in this entire city that could call me on that. Mm. Like, you're the guy who actually would know what those marks are. And if I'm saying I'm going to walk onto the team, it's your team. So he goes, okay, cool. Well, uh, we started tomorrow at two 30. So come on out and I'll see you at practice. And I was like, yeah, coach, like, um, this is a, it's a spring sport and this is, we're in August right now. So I'll see you in the spring thinking like, I got eight months to dodge this dude. Like, there's no way he'll remember me. I'm set. I got a cool place to work out. He goes, uh, you're in college now, son. We start now. He goes, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> and I was like, okay, coach, I'll, I'll try to make it, you know, kind of, again, kind of blowing him off. He goes, if you're going to be on the team, you will make it. And I was like, uh, okay, all right. And I just kind of walked out with my tail between my legs, like what the just happened? Like, so I finished my workout and I go drive back to my dorm and I'm sitting there and I call my dad and like, he goes, how'd the workout go? I'm like, good, good. And did some cleans and some bench. It's like, I think I joined the track team. And he's like, what? Now you got to understand my dad was like the highest recruited discus thrower in the nation out of high school. So he came to the university of South Carolina on a track full track scholarship. He was like their guy. (laughs) 
we are two different throwers. I was a nobody, never recruited. No one outside of my high school knew who I was. My dad was from New Jersey. Every college in America knew who he was. And so it was like, basically you're, it's like, you know, your dad's Howie Long and you're telling him you want to play football, but you're a crappy football player. You're not, you're not Chris Long and a Super Bowl champion, you know, you suck. So he's like, really? And I told him the story and he's kind of thinking, all right, you're doing this for me. I don't really know why you're doing this. What's your story? And I said, well, I guess we're going to do this. And I guess, <laughs> I guess I'll just go out there. And he was like, really? And I was like, yeah, we'll see what happens, you know? And that was the day that changed my life. I went out there the next day and no earthly idea what to expect. And they, they literally laughed at me when I walked out because I'm this skinny, I look like a pole vaulter. And they're like, oh, you're going to throw in the, the SEC, the Southeastern Conference, you know, which is like, all the big schools in the South, like the big monster, Alabama, Auburn, Florida, Georgia, you know, people get full rides to go through here. And they generally, if, if you win a big meet, you're probably going to the Olympics. Like you're that level. And I just like an idiot walked on to one of the most competitive teams in the nation. And I just didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, when I got there, and so we started lifting weights, and I was not very strong. I was I was okay strong, but not for a thrower, a college thrower. So Larry Judge made me train at the uh, power rack with the girls, um, and he told me, he said, you have to train with Dawn and Lisa until you're stronger than them. And again, like I've said before, Dawn and Lisa turned out to be – Dawn, I think, broke the world record in the 20-pound weight probably 10 or 15 times the American record and the hammer more times than I could count. And the number two girl always was her training partner and my teammate, Lisa. So literally I had number one and two on American soil there every day training with them. And so it was like, I had to throw their hammers until I could throw them further than them. I had to lift their weights until I could, I was stronger than them. And then I was allowed to graduate off of the women's rack and make it on to, you know, train with the guys because otherwise, you know, he didn't coach didn't believe that I was literally, worthy enough to take up their time and have to move my weights just to take the weights on and off to train with the big boys. And so I remember the day I had to squat 365 for five. And that was the day that I beat Don and Lisa by like five pounds. And that was the day that I got to graduate off their rack, which is crazy to think about. That's a 365 was like 170 kilos ish, 160, 165, I think. Um, so yeah, I had to be relatively strong for a 180 pound guy at that point. Um, to not have to not be relegated to train with the women and, and no disrespect with them. But, you know, as a guy, that's kind of hard, <laughs> you know, you have to train with the pink weights basically. Um, but it was a good, it was a good, uh, you know, test to just say, Hey, listen, you, you haven't earned anything. Like you're, you're blessed just to be sitting in this room. And then that goes back to, where the drive in me just said, no, I want to, I want people to go, Oh, you belong in this room. And because I certainly didn't at that time. So then it was push, 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 even to the points where, so how we worked on our, not to get into training too much, but we worked on a, a rep max. So every four weeks we would <clears throat> hit a rep max in a predetermined rep range, meaning this month our squat reps would be a, a five rep. Next, so we would do four sets of five, three sets of five, two sets of five, one set of five in the four weeks. So the last week, your only goal and your only work set was that one set of five, but it was the heaviest, you know, that was your maximum set of five. So we would rotate like that every month, which was a wildly effective program, especially for young athletes. And um, I remember, 
I was getting so strong so fast that I was pushing so hard, but I was just, I was trying to up the ante so quickly and I would go and I would eat so much food mm -hmm. every day. And I would just get to the point where I got sick because I realized I had to recover even in 1994, I got it. Like I had to eat so much to recover from the workouts because I had to work out so hard to catch everybody else because I was two and three years behind. I was a, I was a late bloomer that hadn't really trained and I wasn't good. I was like the worst possible scenario. So I was taking like 10,000 calories a day and just, you know, I put on 30 pounds in one semester. Um, but I remember my, I had like a 315 for six, I think was like, I think I was supposed to be a six or I think seven, I was three, 315 for seven in the squat. That was like my cycle and I got it for 14 reps, mm. but that was like, that was just the maniacal nature of our group was, okay, if you're supposed to do it for seven, that, you know, and most people would say that's the goal, that's the success. And that was the minimal barrier of entry for, for our team was like, well, yeah, you, you, you better do your hundred percent. I mean, you better do your hundred percent set. That's, that's if you were asleep for the last four weeks, if you didn't get what you're supposed to get, what the money comes in is how high above that do you get? And so it, we, it became a contest, which is like, okay, I'm supposed to do this crazy 500 for set of five, this, you know, and guys would already kind of click that off in their brain. They go, I'm going to make that set of five. Can I get seven? Can mm -hmm. I get eight? And you get, if you get a group of 10 men and 10 women that are all thinking that way and it gets and it is contagious among that group. And it's like a big swirling shark pit of just people just trying to outdo each other, you know, not, I did more weight than you, but like, I got my reps for more than you got your reps, whatever our reps are, who could put forth the most effort, who could, who could dig the deepest, who could. And then I remember going like, like screaming and almost crying my last five reps. But I just remember like going, if I could get one more, that's one more better I am. If I get one. And then of course I was in striking distance of, of doubling my, my max set. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that. Was it smart training? No. Was it necessary at that time to where I knew what hard was and what they call it a rate of perceived exertion, RPE, what a 10 was? I know what a 10 is. Hmm. I know what that is. Most people don't. And I'm not saying it makes me better. I just know that I've lived there before. And I, I would hope people would live at a, an 8 to a 9 to a 10 RPE just a couple times in their life where they understand what really, really hard is. Like we would go home and piss blood all the time. We would go home and crap blood from time to time. Not, not what I'm saying. That's good. But there are the physiological evidence that we were living at a 10. And, you know, but that being said, you had a group of athletes who some of them came in as walk-ons like I did. Some of them came in as highly recruited. But I would say out of that group, 80 to 90% of them made the national championships and probably 70% made All-American. Multiple ones were SEC conference champions, Olympians. And there was only maybe one or two people ever in that group that were highly recruited blue chip athletes going in. So mm -hmm. I saw the recipe as, oh, just work harder than everybody around mm -hmm. and get the people in your group that also work harder than everybody around. And then when you think that's as much as you could do, do 20% more and see if your body could take it. And if it can, I don't know, 
turn up the volume a little bit more, see if your body can take it because all of a sudden you'll start getting into these uncharted territory. And then you wake up one day and you're in the room that you weren't allowed to be in. You were in the room that no one expected you to be in. And then you just keep repeating the process through life. And then you just keep ending up in conversations and places that you ah. Uh, you lose me? Sorry, people were calling me. <laughs> you good? Yeah, conversations and places that. <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, so conversations and places that you're that you're not really qualified to be. But I guess that's what that's a perception of if you're qualified to be there or not, not the actuality. Because you could change your you could change your destiny on that, and that's where I think people need to understand. Like, has a chip on my shoulder helped me? Absolutely. I had a chip on my shoulder for a long, long time. Uh, sometimes it's been extremely helpful. And that chip is, no, I belong to be here. And you go hard enough and eventually you do. You know? yeah. But then the key is, is mentor the, uh, those other people to, to let them be there too. Because then when you fill up that room of amazing people that was maybe one time seen as this elite group well then if there's a whole bunch of you it's no longer elite and you've just built a new higher base and then a few of you could still work and push from there at a base camp and see if you get to a new summit um so yeah i I, um, absolutely loved what you said about um you know sometimes it's amazing to go to the red line and i've done it once and I always look back at that being just such such a defining moment in my life of hey, there's always right. there's always more to go. And then the other thing that while you're talking here, it's it's how do you you know that's an incredible environment that you got to be a part of. How when oh. you when you're told that hey, you don't really belong here, and, and and you've got the team sort of riding you like that. How do you was that was that the thing that managed to get you to the the chip that said, right, I'm going to be here and I'm going to belong here. Do you think? Um, in some ways, I think that um, the weightlifting is really what helped because it maybe it's even how the cycle was set up because every four weeks you get to test. I and mean, we tested every four weeks for five years. So every four weeks you get to put your, your, uh, I don't know, your hypothesis or your reputation or your everything on the line. And so in a, it just so happened I was 17 years old. So you get strong pretty fast. So every four weeks it was like, I was getting this giant dopamine hit of this huge success mm-hmm. because I was doing this, like supposed to get eight reps and getting 12, supposed to get seven, getting 14, supposed to, and it was like, boom, 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 boom. You know? And then one year my back squat went from 320 for a single to 445 for five. You know, and you look and you're so I got addicted to the success. Mm. I got addicted to the dopamine hit of winning. And once I had taken two or three hits of that early on, you couldn't tell me anything but because I believed it was possible because I'd just done it. I'd just done it in four weeks to what was considered impossible. And then the next four weeks, I did it again. And the next four weeks, I did it again. So that happens two or three times. If you're somewhat delusional like I am, you believe that, and I think being delusional is, is a superpower that, that you, this people need to have. Uh, you believe that it's just, you, you start believing that it, it's possible. And then I look and I go, okay, well, the guy that I train with every day, I watch what he's doing and he's an all American and he doesn't go home and hang up his Superman cape. 
he eats at the dining hall with me and I give him rides to practice and we hang out and watch the Simpsons and he's a dude like I am and he's training and he's squatting. I'm making a 600 pounds or 500 pounds and I'm doing 400 pounds, but I'm getting stronger every week. So I start doing the math and go, well, if he could do that, he doesn't have this magical crystal thing. He's just done the work. So I'm on the same highway. He's just at a different waypoint than I am. So all I have to do is lay the gas on and catch him and be where he is. And I could, and if I keep laying the gas on, I could pass him. It's nothing against him. He's just proving to me that it's a possibility. So all I have to do is my work and stay focused on staying on this track. And then the, and then the, the result will, will weed itself out. Just people forgot to tell me I was 170 pounds, you know, or I didn't listen. And I just go, no, this is how this is. I just do the work. And, it, and everybody's like, yeah, get low this guy. Um, but then when you, then you start, you know, you start seeing the wins happen and you go, oh, I get in, you know, I get asked to travel this weekend. I, I scored a point here. I scored a point there. And then it was just blood in the water. And I tasted it every time and I just wanted more. And I said, okay, what do I have to do to get to, what's this SEC championship thing you're talking about? You got to do this. All right, good. That's the, that's the plan. That's what I got to do. That's the criteria. Good. Let me go. And then it just kept growing like that. So I think that's been a constant is just understand what the criteria is and give someone just enough of a, of a breadcrumb where they understand what indicators to look for or what, um, what motions in their, in their trap bring success. And then you find out really quickly, are they interested in it to the point where they're going to do that stuff? And if they don't, they're answering it for you. Hmm. You know, if I knew that it took a whole bunch of effort and eating a lot to get better every four weeks, well, if I've done it three times and I choose not to do it any more times, well, then I've told you my answer of what I think about success because I have the answers to the test. I just chose not to use them anymore. And so once I knew the answers to the test, it was like, oh, then it's just a money exchange. I just pump more in and more comes out. And then it was, as Dan John says, simple but not easy. <laughs> simple but not easy. Mate, um, and, and you just said the words good there a few times in, in facing a challenge. Um, I reheard that Jocko Willing good the other day again. And man, that's, again, a powerful thing. If you Just like he says, you you know what's wrong. Good, we can do something about it. <laughs> exactly. And that's, that's something I think people get afraid of. It's almost better to know what the problem is because then you could establish a plan or you could establish criteria. Criteria is the biggest thing. Just understand what, what am I being judged on? What am I being graded on? And that was another thing for my college career that was probably, you know, when Judd talked to me a couple of times on his, you know, uh, what I was saying about the positive thing, but you've maybe heard it before, Greg Kraft, who was our, our, our uh, track coach at the time at South Carolina. I came for my first semester. I'm still goofing around. I wanted to throw far, but I was still goofing around academically. And he pulled me aside and said, Hey man, you got, you know, A, B, C, D, F. I'll kind of cut the story quickly, but <clears throat> he said, your academics are terrible. And I'm thinking, Oh, okay. Um, but at the time, I was, it was my first semester at South Carolina. Again, I was a walk-on. No one knew who I was. I was kind of slipping between the raindrops. And he pulled me aside, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, this coach actually, you know, he's like, Soren, come over here. I'm thinking, sweet, he knows me. 
uh, went over there and he said, listen, he said, got your grades. Well, I told me that and I'm thinking I'm a little sheepish, but I didn't think anything of it. He goes, listen, here's how this works. If you're the university of South Carolina track team, you need to do one of two things. Here's what you're graded on is basically what he was saying. He goes, but what he actually said was you need to do one of two things. <clears throat> you need to get really good grades or you, you need to throw really far because you're a thrower. You need to throw really far at the conference and the national level and score points for the team. He goes, or you need to get really good grades and bring up the team average for those who are really good on the track in the field that can't get good grades. So we, our team average is still really good. He goes, those are the two things that you're here to do. Currently you're doing neither. You have terrible grades. And although I think you could throw pretty far one day, you're not currently doing it. Get your shit together or leave. <laughs> that was, that was the sentence. And I looked at him thinking, wow, wow, uh, an adult has never like laid it out in adult terms. And I'm 17 years old. I guess I was 18 at the time. <clears throat> so he laid it out, but it was like, wow. And, and I walked away feeling a little bit abused. But I thought about later in my dorm, I said, well, he doesn't mad at me. He was just telling me exactly what I was being judged upon, what my criteria was. So... I'm on his crap list and probably going to get asked to leave and go home. Literally, he said, get your shit together or leave. He's going to kick me off of this track team that I'm finding so much enjoyment in and I see a future that I could have. He's going to take the first sport I've loved. He's going to take that from me, but it's not him taking it from me. He's given me the criteria that I'm being judged upon. And if I don't do one of those two, I'm gone. Simple as that. There's no... And he even said, he goes, you seem like a nice guy. You know, the girls on the theme, team think you're kind of cute. <laughs> Coaches like talking to you. Like, he's like, great. That's all fun. All the cool college stuff. Great. He goes, here's what matters. All I see is your grades and your distance. Figure it out. And so that started an upward, an upward cascade of better grades, throwing further, blah, blah, blah. Now it wasn't, I'd like to tell you it happened right away immediately. It certainly did. You know, I, a little bit better, a little bit further, but I'm proud to say that my fifth year, my, well, my fourth and fifth year, because I redshirted in my first year, I had a 3.7. So I was on the dean's list on all, you know, all, all both of those years, all four semesters, and I was all American indoor and outdoor both. And then I won the SEC championship and set the SEC champion record and was team captain by my fourth or fifth year. So again, once I learned how to start winning the winning was easier and easier and easier, but I had to have that criteria that was very clear of what was necessary to be deemed successful, or I would have kept chasing all this other stuff that I thought was what was needed. But he was the first one that said, listen, here's it. Here's how you get paid. If you don't do this, I don't care. And so as a leader and a boss, now I have to make sure I lay out my criteria very, very structured and tell my guys what they're being, what their criteria is and what they're getting what, what they're being accounted for. Mm -hmm. Otherwise mm -hmm. um, there's, you know, misconceptions of what their roles are and what their jobs are. And man, I've done it wrong so many times. It's, it's crazy. I still do it wrong, but I have to go back to that conversation and go, can I have that conversation with one of my employees or one of my kids? Can I have that conversation with them? And I have to make sure if I going to go hard and paint like that with them, that I've, that I've made it very clear what my expectations are, my criteria is, or I, I have to then hold myself accountable because I have not given good leadership and goals um, 
And then it's my problem, not theirs. Hmm. So had, had coach Kraft not given me those goals, well, if I would have failed, that'd have been his problem because he hadn't laid out what my goals were. But once he laid them out, he handed that ownership over to me and kind of like Jocko talks about ex- extreme ownership. Then it was on me. He's told me exactly how you get good here and exactly how you leave here. <laughs> and that was that. Yeah. yeah it's, 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 it's powerful to, uh, take responsibility for your own path, mate. You, you touched on, on on your business there. Um, what is it about taking a piece of steel and, and creating something that's extremely functional? And, and you know, if you if you follow Derek Woodsky, you see that he's always raving about you know why it's why it's a level above. But then also create this thing of beauty. Where does the creativity come from? Um, I think it boils down to just love. You know, I've always. I've always loved strength and, and kind of going back to those wins. Once I realized that this, the world of strength was my ticket to winning um, and was my biggest thing that I could throw effort into and get the biggest result out of. I mean, that was what built my athletic career. It's what built my professional career. Uh, it's what built part of my image and how I feel about myself and my self-worth. And so, so much of that was there. So I'm always in love with the strength game. Um, but I'm also an artist and I'm also um, and my father, who I learned from was, he was an inventor, you know? And so how do you mix inventing and wanting to change your surroundings or with your love for strength? Well, it becomes strength art. And that's what I think we do better than most is because we're not going anywhere. First of all, it's not a job, it's a life. So we've held on many times when it was not smart or feasible to hold on, you know, like anything else, like, a, you know, and so times when we should have gone out of business, somehow we didn't. Um, and times when we should have thrown in the towel, we didn't. And you just, but if you love it, you just keep pushing, pushing, pushing it. And it's what consumes your mind. You know, they, you know, I think the old proverb goes like, you know, uh, was the grandfather was telling the son, he said, you know, there's two wolves inside me. One is, is angry and jealous and hateful and, and prideful and boastful. And then there's another wolf inside me that's kind and protecting. And, you know, and he said, they're always at a constant fight inside me of who's going to, who's going to win. And then his grandson says, well, well, which one wins? And he said, well, whichever one you feed, hmm. you know, and it's just being around and involving your, and that's why relationships are so so important because it's how do you feed that? What wolf do you feed? And your vocation and what you do, what wolf does that feed? Um, and thankfully I'm in a position where I could generally feed the good wolf. And, um, and I'm, I'm always, if I'm thinking about improving human performance and strength and making those around me better, in my mind just thinking about improving human performance and strength and making those around me better, which happens to manifest itself into steel shapes that tend to be called weightlifting equipment. Hmm. And mate, um, hearing your experiences with, with, you know, your journey through college um, and what you've just mentioned, then it's no surprise that then this weightlifting com- company ends up with a tribe of amazing people where <laughs> <laughs> and events like Summer Strong and Winter Strong, tell us about, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah you'll have to come out for it. Uh, <laughs> so Summer Strong started 12 years ago as my dad's birthday party. Nice. Uh, asked him what he wanted to do. And he said, well, let's, you know, so that hey, your birthday's coming up. What do you want to do? He goes, I don't know. Let's uh, open up the gym, do like a, 
lift day. Let's cook some stuff, get a couple of kegs of beer if you want to drink and let's just have a good fellowship time. You know, so we invited people over open house, no charge. 38 people from five different States showed up. It was like, Oh, cool. Right on. No big deal. That wasn't named anything. I think we called it Sornex open house. And, uh, but what happened, we got people from the strongman world, the, the sandbag world, the Olympic lifting, the power lifting, the Highland games. And like, so although it was only 38 people, there were still five or six different genres that came that were experts from each. And so because it was an intimate group, people started sharing with one another. And then you watched a power lifter trying to snatch the first, his first time. And then later training with a sandbag, doing a sandbag clean. And then later doing something in CrossFit. And then doing a jujitsu thing later on because that guy was there. And, and I watched and I said, well, all of these people have different backgrounds. The commonality is they're passionate about whatever they're passionate about. But they're also passionate about teaching and sharing it. Mm. And so there was a little bit of magic caught there. And then so ah, no big deal got done with that year. Second year came along. We're like, Hey, we ought to do that thing again. <laughs> and, and then, you know, in, and in ways that things grow, you know, more people showed up more and more and more. And then this year is coming up on this 12th year. And last year we were turning people away at I think 600 something people, um, you know, and now we bring in presenters from all over the world and it has its own kind of life to it. And people like Derek, Derek and I talk about, you know, how do you summer strong? And there's a thing, there's like something to it. You know, you, you, you drop your ego and that's one of the, the recipe, um, secret ingredients of the recipe is we, we look all year for people who would just make the best meal, what we call it. So it's not, how do we bring in big name speakers? It's how do we bring in amazing, extraordinary presenters who, when put together in the right context but also time and space within a three-day weekend make the best meal meaning you have someone that's going to take you up high emotionally and maybe you fill your brain and then you're going to have someone that's going to work you really hard in your body and then you have someone that's going to take you somewhere transcendental with your heart that you didn't expect you saw it coming and then you're going to do something else and so it's this roller coaster ride that's super fun hard to predict um, and that just feeds you. It's like I've said before, talking to Derek Woodski is like taking medicine that tastes like candy. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to do is summer strong is create event that is therapy that feels like a roller coaster. And when you walk off of it, you go, that was amazing. I don't even know where to put it And in the best when I, when I know we hit it and I know we're riding on the right vibe is when I talk to people, you know, I walk through the crowd and ask people, what was your favorite part? And you'll see their eyes glass over and like a little tear and they go, I don't know, but I don't want to leave. And then it's like, yes, we're vibrating on the right frequency right now because I don't know what's moved you, but something has moved you. And if it's moved you, that means that you're, your life has changed. And if your life has changed for the better, then you're going to go out in the world and do something better. And if that's the case, that's what we, we want. And so the hard part is how do you do that 12 years around? And you, a lot of effort and time goes into how do we construct these people and say, yeah, okay. Uh, he would maybe be better for next year. She would be better for this year because like if you're making a big gourmet meal, you don't always use your favorite ingredients because they're your favorite ingredients. Sometimes they just don't work for that meal. 
Um, and I hate to kind of objectify people in that way, but because they're so valuable and powerful, you know, you don't use cinnamon on everything. It's good, but it doesn't work with some things. And so, um, and we, the, this other secret of it is we make the event for the speakers. The goal of it is to make the speakers enjoy it as much as possible because I've realized the speakers are the influencers and they're the ones in the room that everyone's looking to. They're the pace setters. So if you make the event amazing for them, they're having a good time. They'll engage with more people. And if those 20 people are engaging and have the best time of their life, the other 500 in the room will understand. They'll, they'll see that and go, yeah, I'm down. But too many times I think people set up an event as a rock star type thing and the people on the stage are just getting their butt worked off and then the crowd is all that matters. Uh, but you have to take both into account to get a synergistic relationship because there's 20 or 30 or 100 people in the crowd that could headline Summer Strong. They just happen to be in the crowd that year. Hmm. And that's the key is then when that person, Derek Witzke, walks off stage because he's really been looking forward to talking to a Brandon Lilly who's not speaking this year. And then a Jen Wiederstrom who isn't speaking this year but has in the past when they get to sit down and then Judd Logan who flies on and then there's a 10 person group of these all-stars diving in deep. They're not asking what their training maxes are. They're not asking how the weather is. They're going in deep. They're going in deep water. And then five or six other people from this crowd get to sit back and watch these absolute mega giants of the industry be vulnerable and be candid with one another. It changes them. It changes how they view life. It changes how they, what their economy of great is, what their economy of legendary is. And, you know, the giants walk away fed, but everyone around them understand like how, as we call how the summer strong. And then you, you grow this community of people that every year, a higher and higher percentage of the people at summer strong understand what the event is and how to do it. And they walk in and then, then they're pumping energy back into the system. Um, and then eventually it kind of like, I think we're at a point now where I wouldn't say it runs itself, but we've kind of joked. We're like, at this point, we could probably put a couple of cases of beer in the parking lot and just invite everybody and not do anything else. And they'll turn out. All right. <laughs> like, you know, of course we overthink it much too far above and beyond that because that's just not who I am by letting it go. But it's now it's in the hands of the people, you know, which is cool. So winter strong was a <clears throat> condensed version of that one-tenth the size and it was com it was combining the outdoors world with the strength world something that's not really been done well before so yeah. Yeah, it looked looked like a hell of a weekend and i, and I told you it's great when i when i saw derek talking about laura being there i immediately messaged kai and said are you going to this if so <laughs> these people were just like yeah yeah boy, it's gonna be great i was like oh it's gonna be awesome <laughs> yeah no we had a great time and that that event was a little bit more of an experiment it was like a summer <clears throat> strong one i thought it would work you know it's kind of like you trying that new recipe you know you know all the ingredients and they should work together but sometimes you know or, or like I, I say like if you're if you're zeroing a rifle you could mount it well, you could get it bore sided, you could do all this stuff, but sometimes you gotta take a shot before you do any adjustments. You know, you could you could figure it out all you want, but sometimes you just gotta crack that first shot off and see what happens. And the first shot was pretty close. Nice man. Yeah, I've got a beef heart in the freezer that I know what to do. Oh, with, wow. But don't know what Oregon to do. Organ meats, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what to do with, but don't know. Yeah, that would have been the perfect crowd to 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 uh, you know, 
who was it? The rivets, you know, Johnny and Jen rivet. I do now. They're fa- yeah. yeah. They're <laughs> fantastic. They would have, they would have figured out how to cook it on the Traeger and make it taste like the best thing you've ever had. <laughs> awesome, mate. This has been absolutely insane. Where do people find, <laughs> find you? And um, yeah. Yeah. So Sorinex, S O R I N E X, uh, dot com. Sorinex on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, Bert Soren, B-E-R-T-S-O-R-I-N on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, no, I think I'm on Twitter. I just never go to it. So don't go to Twitter. Go to Instagram. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't know. It's, I would assume you could find me. Shouldn't be too hard. Shouldn't be too hard. Yeah. <laughs> Big bearded guy that usually has a random alligator in a picture or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, mate. So um, kind of how we've got a connection is, is through wood schisms. Do you have a wood schism to leave? Oh gosh. Uh, <laughs> oh, the, he killed me with a wood schism. I, I'm, I, I haven't had the, the, uh, the, the confidence to do a wood schism yet. <laughs> oh man. I, he's way too good at it. I'll have, I'll, I'll post one and I'll tag you guys. I have to think about it for long. That I, I'm not as smart as Derek. Yeah, no, it's um, it's always something out of the blue, and yeah, it's always epic. <laughs> it's always epic. Yeah, no, and I, it, it, yeah. So I'll talk to him, and and so he'll post something that's just wildly poetic and amazing, and I'll text him. I'm like, yeah, that last line was awesome. I was like, and then he'll just text back. He's like, yeah, what do you call it? like stoplight ramblings? So he he'll literally. <laughs> whatever's in his mind at the stoplight, he'll just pull up the phone and talk to text it. And that's what it is. Like, I'm like, that's it right off the rip. He's like, yeah, I don't really know what I said. It was just what was in my brain at the time. He was a very good Derek Woodski, by the way. Uh, And you're just like, that crap is just rolling around in there. Like that eloquently put. And so, you know, it's kind of like if I'm learning how to play guitar, if I tried to play you some, you know, Jimmy page right now, it, it wouldn't do it justice. So I'll, I'll save my whiskeyism. I'll, I'll put it on my story and tag you guys when I could actually do Derek justice. But if you haven't followed Derek, uh, whiskey, you're absolutely crazy and you're missing one of the best humans on the planet. Absolutely. Mate. Oh, um, yeah, get on with today and enjoy South Carolina. I'll just, well, thanks. Your, your, um, Canadian accent there was, was also really good. <laughs> oh Yeah. <laughs> You know what? <laughs> well, thanks a ton. I appreciate you having me. And uh, it's been an honor and it's fun to get to connect with you. Absolutely, mate. Awesome. We'll leave it there. See ya. Awesome. Uh, all that can really be said about that is be legendary. Uh, what a wicked takeaway from Bert there. Um, everything he says there just has you hanging on every word. And yeah, that was... That was wicked. Another episode where where I left sort of tingling and, and enthusiastic and <laughs> really pumped to get the day going. And I must say, since talking to these guys, I've, I've found a real massive inspiration going forward. Um, real, really motivated. I've just got to get past a bit of lack of sleep going on, but hopefully we're on the right track again with that. Uh, it's always challenging when when you've got a wee one, but definitely the. Uh, the motivation and the intensity is there, so no, absolutely awesome. And a, and a massive thanks to Kaifanu for the introduction because whew, it's uh, these last two people have been absolute legends. You know, goes along with the product. Sorry, next, be legendary. Of course, I bring the episode to you 
with the help of Waikito, W-A-I-K-E-T-0 dot P-R-U-V-I-T-N-O-W dot com, Waikito with a zero dot ProveItNow.com for exogenous ketones. If you'd like to get your hands on those, just head to the website if you're in the USA, Canada, um, East Asia or Australia. Otherwise, if you're in New Zealand, just hit me up on the Waikito Facebook page, W-A-I-K-E-T-O, or on my Instagram, at StagVision, and I can get that ordered for you. Very easy. Um, I love the product, especially when it comes to rugby, protecting from traumatic brain injury, uh, as well as giving a nice, clean energy. Um, keeps the, the brain on an even keel, especially in a sport like rugby, where your uh, emotions can get the best of you sometimes. <laughs> Um, thanks so much for checking out the episode. Be sure to tag myself and Bird and Sorenix and uh, any other people in a post if you've enjoyed this episode. Also, feel free to get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you. I love your feedback. It's been wicked hearing from people. And if you're like the majority and you listen to this on iTunes, please leave us a rating, um, a review if you've got an extra five minutes. And I won't even take that long. Probably take you 30 seconds, but it means a lot. It helps a lot to get uh, this out to more eyes and ears and yeah have another great weekend as Sorenix says be legendary <laughs>